Briefly, grab your Bibles, Exodus 15. Uh, we'll do a lot of skipping. You're welcome. Uh, Exodus 15. I, I, I want to look at this passage uh, briefly. And uh, um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and just stand up and we'll, we'll read through it. We'll go through 20, 21 verses. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song of the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. If he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious of power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes him like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed uh, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, you. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into see. Let's pray briefly. Our Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment and understanding your word. So open our entire beings for your glory. May I decrease so you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. A few years ago, um, I was given the opportunity by uh, the KBC's uh, chaplain over at the state capitol. Many of you all know uh, Brother Steve Weaver, Dr. Steve Weaver, get it right, uh, pastor over at Farmdale, sister church of our association. Steve is doing wonderful work. Um, and if you ever want to help out in providing lunch for the Bible studies, he does with legislators during the season and then with uh, the workers there during the off season, if you will. Um, uh, we, we can certainly, we've done some of that. I've taught some for him, but uh, that certainly is available. But one of the things he did, I believe it was in 2018, March 2018, if, if, if Facebook is still accurate, um, is uh, he hosted an exhibit of ancient manuscripts at the Capitol, and uh, all kinds of people came. It was a big event. Some of you may have came. Um, my, my wife and kids came to, to see it. It was sort of the homeschool thing, and they heard me tell the same jokes a thousand times, and so they eventually just left and took pictures of, of the Capitol. Um, but I was one of the presenters, and I had uh, a scroll. Let me, uh, uh, there I am, so just to prove that I was there. Look at her, in a suit. Look at her, see, I do own one. Um, 
And I'll wear it for the governor, but I, I may not wear it for y'all. Uh, but I want to highlight, this This was my scroll. This is the one that I, I shared with people. I've already circled it for you, and so you may not be able to see it, but it's, it's the best pictures I have. So blame my wife. She's the one taking the pictures. Uh, the, the passage I had uh, was from this old manuscript. I don't remember all the details about it. But it was open to the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15. And if, if, if you can't see it, where a circle, you notice that the typeset looks bizarre. And what it is, is, is it's this passage of Exodus 15, 1 and following, is, is you'll notice you'll have a little bit to the left, a little bit in the middle, and a little bit on the right. In fact, if you zoom in on it, which I know you, you can't do, it, it's, it's, I, these may be on my, my Facebook, I, I don't remember. Um, you, you'll see that the way the middle is written, it, it would be like a large lot of end of, at a, end of a, a little quote there. So, so, so that the, the gap, you know, really fits and it's, it's symmetrical and all that sort of stuff. And the reason it's written that way is because this song is celebrating what God had done at the Red Sea, obviously. It's very clear in the text what is going on here. So when the manuscript uh, 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 copyists put this down, they designed the text so that as you read the text, before you was a reminder that God parted the Red Seas and delivered his people and destroyed their enemies. It's, it's there in the text, in this old manuscript. Well, I, I trust you're familiar with the background. We won't go into it. Let me, let me highlight one thing, and that is the response of the Israelites when it comes to uh, the Red Sea. Notice there that they responded with fear. You see it there in verse 31. The people feared the Lord and they believed in him. They respond with fear. Their first response is fear. Their second response bleeding into chapter 15 is that of worship. Any of this sound familiar? It's the same pattern we see with David in 2 Samuel 6. His initial response is fear, which then leads to worship. Well, uh, for sake of time, I want to look uh, just really highlight a, a few points here regarding the, the psalm. We won't go into the details that, that we could. The first thing is it describes the Lord's victory here in verses 1 through 5. And one of the things you need to know about the psalm is it's broken down into four parts. Each part has two stanzas, and it's hard to bring it out in the English. So verses 1 to 5, or really 1b to 5, is the first part. And the first stanza of, of all four parts starts out with, Reflecting on the might of God. So you see there in verse 1, he has triumphed gloriously. Verse 2, he is strong. Verse 3, he is my salvation. You see there, describe the might of God. And the second stanza explains what has just been stated here. The writer wants us to see that Yahweh, the one that part of the Red Seas, who is who has triumphed gloriously and is strong, he, it says there is a man of war, a warrior. Now, this description to modern hearers is a bizarre one. We don't like to think of God as a man of war, as a warrior. We'd rather portray him as my co-pilot and friend and buddy, right? And he's, he's always there for me. We never want to think of him armed uh, and ready to go to battle. However, the Bible uh, describes God as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, at least 285 times in the Bible. That seems significant. In fact, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 14, this is exactly what Moses says. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, the average Baptist here may have enough trouble with the first part of that verse, right? You know, it's that last part we 
We'll just skip that part, right? Um, but uh, one of the things to notice about the Bible is it opens up with a wedding, right? Adam and Eve, and first words that come out of Adam's mouth is a love poem for, for his bride. But then it m- immediately goes into war. Genesis 3.15, that there will be enmity, hostility, war between the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And before long, that war looks like mankind caught in a perpetual cycle of violence, warfare, and murder. And so the hope of humanity in the Bible is, of course, Christ. It's seen on the small scale, right? Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David, but is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That is why, for us as Christians, we turn to the New Testament, and what is the imagery we get of Christ at the cross? We see him as a warrior triumphing over our enemies. Colossians 2 uh, says, And you who were dead in your trespasses... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph over them in him. Notice there, Paul connects the cross with triumph. And what he's, what he's doing is he's borrowing a, a Roman picture of when a Roman general and Caesar would win a great battle. They would take the king or whoever it is they, they, they defeated, the chief or whatever, put him at, at the end of, of the parade. And Caesar would come and the general would come in a white stallion. And, and in the back would, would be the defeated foe. They, they would be stripped, literally, with, with nothing on. And the people would hurl mockery upon them. You thought you could defeat mighty Rome. Look at you now. And, and Paul is taking that imagery and saying, that's what Christ has done by the means of the cross. He has fought a great battle. He has won a great victory, triumphing over the debt of your sin. Of course, if, if we had time, we could look at Revelation 19, where Jesus shows up on a white horse with, an, with a sword, however you may interpret some of that imagery, and on his robe is tattooed the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, this is why we sing some of the songs we sing, Right? See if this sounds familiar. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Now, I don't know about you. I grew up. I thought that's what you sing on Independence Day. I'm willing to bet there are plenty of churches around this great land that sang that song this morning due to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. There's nothing wrong with that. But I always thought it was a patriotic song. You know what it's really about? God laying the smackdown on our enemies and on his enemies. Where the grapes of wrath are stored? I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't want to be part of that. Right? I mean, we, we, we sing of Christ triumphing over everything. And this has been true throughout Christian history. Think about, for example, Martin Luther, where he sings, And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall befall him. So we see the Lord's victory. We also need to see the Lord's power. Again, we see praising his might, the first stanza, the second stanza, the reason for that. So verse 6, glorious in power. Verse 7, the greatness of your majesty. And this is demonstrated in how he did it. Notice the strong metaphors of verse 8. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Again, I don't understand all of that. But the metaphors provide a very strong imagery for us. 
What you need to see here, just in brief, is that the Israelites are saying, Pharaoh's bad. The Egyptians are mighty. We have a secret enemy. Or we have a secret power, rather, right? Think about all the great fantasy movies and, 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 and books and stuff. There's always that fear of, of the enemy has that one weapon, right? You know, so in Star Wars, for like all of the episodes, it's, it's the Death Star, right? They just keep bringing back the, the Death Star, except this one's bigger. Um, in, uh, we, we recently watched Mortal Engines. It's the, the Medusa thing. It's Peter Jackson. Um, Lord of the Rings, right? It's the one ring, right, to rule them all. Uh, Thanos, sorry, my son was here. He's, he's with the youth group. But if you were here, like, yeah, Thanos. I don't know why he likes the Methusian Thanos anyway. But uh, the, the mother box of uh, uh, Justice League, uh, the cube of Transformers, right? These are all like, like these, these weapons. If you can control that one weapon, you'll, you, you, you'll win the world, right? Well, that's, that's the base of what they're saying here is that we have that weapon. His name is Yahweh. And he defeated Egypt, not us. Of course, the irony is that the Jews forget about this. You look at Exodus 15, 16, and 17. It's the same pattern. They complain because they're hungry, they're thirsty. Business meeting went too long. Whatever it might be, it, uh, they, they're complaining about something. And this is, I'm glad the people of God don't do this anymore, but they used to complain about everything and make life mis- miserable for the rest of us. But, and what do you see in the text is that they, have, they, they forget God is their secret weapon. That he is indeed powerful. Well, again, we, we have to move on there. Let's look at the Lord's redemption. Again, we, we are skipping some. Lord's redemption. Again, you see the same patterns, verses 11 through 15. You have a statement about God's might and the reason for his might. So verse 11, who is like you? The answer, majestic in holiness. The reason is given in 13 to 15. I want to highlight there verse 13 briefly. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That's the center of this entire psalm, I believe. That's it. Why did God uh, do the Red Sea? It's not because he's showing off. It's because this is how he's going to redeem his people. And he doesn't just set them free. He draws them to himself. The promised land is a drawing of the people of God to his very presence. Here, God will dwell with his people, the Garden of Eden. That's made very clear here. Therefore, they don't need to fear, the text says, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites. Because the redeemed people are free people. Again, this, this, this is what we sing, isn't it? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose a richer crown? Finally, there is the Lord's assurance. This part is a little different because it, it's not broken into two stanzas. It's broken down into one stanza. And it's verse 16 that the hope that God will walk Israel into the, to the promised land without anything to fear, right? We won't even have to fight a battle. God's just going to clear it out for us. And notice that God will plant his people on your own mountain. This is Eden language, Eden located on top of a mountain, according to Ezekiel. Again, we, we have hymns that reflect this now, don't we? We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. 
This is, this is the hope of the Christian today. And you'll notice that the psalm ends with a brief vignette in, in verses 19 to 20. It reminds the reader, this is all because God destroyed the Egyptians, not the Israelites. God destroyed the Egyptians, liberated his people. And then what do we see there? We see Miriam grabbing the tambourine, grabbing the other ladies of the congregation, and dancing. It's in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling what is in your Bible, isn't it? I tell you, when you come up with the, a Baptist Bible, it'll be Holman uh, Christian Standard Version, of course. You know, Lifeway will get their money. But we'll come up with a Baptist Bible and we'll cross out any reference to, um, to dancing. It, it, it'll, uh, that is how we'll pay off the mortgage. It is done. Can, can we have a Baptist Bible committee? Uh, we'll work with Robin Holman uh, Publishers. Well, let me make just, just one other note because, because we, we, we've left it off, and I do think this is important. It's, it's verse 21, okay? Notice verse 21. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown in the sea. Does that sound familiar? It's, it's the first line of the song we just read. Now, Look, I, I'm not the best writer in the world, but I've, I've done enough in academia and other works to, to, to know in writing and speaking things you should leave out, right? And if you're going to compose a, a poem or a psalm in your writing, I recommend that in three sentences after you, you've composed that, you don't repeat the first line because the reader hasn't forgotten about it. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, if, if you start out the psalm with, I will sing to the Lord, he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider is thrown into the sea. And then a few verses later, you write yet again, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. It's redundant. Why, why do we have this? Well, you would write it for one if you want the reader. Again, for emphasis in Hebrew. If you want them to understand that the victory and the power of God that brings with it the assurance of redemption is not something you merely sing one time. Rather, we are to see as readers that this song is on repeat. Much as David would take six steps and offer a fattened calf and an ox, and so too would you have the Israelites marching forward in the wilderness, singing glory to God in the highest, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider is no more. And so long as they are singing of the power of God, the work of God, they think less about their stomachs. Because they don't have to fear anything. It's when they stop singing, they start complaining. It sounds like we could apply that to our lives. You and I, we, we don't sing much about ancient rituals and ancient cities and parted waters and dry land. But we do regularly. It's one of the things I've asked of every music leader we've had, small or great. You know, they're here for one song. They're here for, for a longer ministry. The one thing I've always asked is I want us to sing a lot of blood. I want, I want us to have in front of us at all times the cross. Because the cross is not something we merely sing and celebrate one time. So long as it is ever before us, we have nothing to fear. That is why the old hymn says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. 
Dear dying lamb, your precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream your flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. But when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing your power to save. See, the Israelites are looking back and reflecting upon the time that God redeemed a people. When we sing of the cross, when we meditate upon the empty tomb, we are doing precisely the same. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for...